Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 12 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. Thank you so much for downloading us wherever you may be in the world, whether you've got us from iTunes, Podbean, or IWN, the International Wrestling Network. My name is the Twisted Genius, Dinez, and I'm joined, as ever, by my esteemed co-host, sports journalist, Liam Happ. Liam, how you doing? Not bad, Dean, not bad. It's a very hectic time. I'm sure you can sympathise with this because I know you've got a very busy spring, but we're currently moving into our first house on the property ladder. Lots of things going on in the family life, the work life. It's all juggling it all. But, uh, yeah, this is why it's a, a good opportunity to give you a treat. For once, we are doing a... I can't believe this is a thing that exists, but we are covering a good WCW pay-per-view. It's a babyface pay-per-view. Is it? Was it not? Did we just watch a Mirage? Maybe we, we all smoked the crack pipe and imagined up a good WCW pay-per-view. No, this this was definitely good. This was one that you know it stuck in my head because you know, t- twenty four years later, I still remember it as being a good show. So you know, it definitely happened. I'm, I'm sure of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to be honest, the stuff we've endured, we both deserve it. You definitely deserve it, Dean. And uh, well, it is the spring. It is the spring. Spring has sprung. Thank God, because it was freezing previously. <laughs> um, and uh, and I'm very pleased to say that we have got. A very special guest with us. Now, I think the fact that we've given him a good pay-per-view clearly means that we didn't like our previous guests. Uh, but this is a man who I've known for many a year. Please welcome to Because WCW, Mr. Darren Goss. Hello there, gentlemen. How are you? We are very well, and how are you? Well, I'm I'm really got nothing on, and I'm just bored senseless, which is really nice, considering how busy you guys are. So Now, when you say you've got nothing on... Well, well you, I, and I'm not doing anything either. Fair, yeah, fair enough. Thank God this isn't a video call. Um, you wish. So, yeah. So, um, as as we often are, like to like to ask people, it'd be it'd be very impolite of me to just uh, start chanting, "Who are you?" But for those people yeah. who aren't familiar with uh, with you, let's. Uh, what's your what's your background in this glorious wrestling business? Well, it's uh, you know it's a debatable background, I suppose. Um, it's been about 10 years now, really, since I, I, I started attempting to manage, um, which, looking back on it recently, really was attempting to manage. But I started, I was this freaky kid. Here we go. We're going back to my childhood now. Sit down, pull up a drink. Um, I started out being forced to watch wrestling by my parents, who were convinced that there's something wrong with me, as I didn't like football or rugby or absolutely anything. And it was a big daddy squash match on the old world of sport, and that really didn't work. So, so um, <laughs> it, no, no comment. Um, I wasn't in the squash match. I just want to say it was, uh, you know, somebody else, probably Regal. But there you go. Um, and say a handful of years later, about 91, we got Sky. And I'm sure this is a very similar story to most people. Except I was drawn by Jimmy Hart, not like an artist, 
he, you know, I, I, I saw him and I thought, wow, that's fantastic. This guy with a megaphone, colorful. He came up with Earthquake, which really helped as well. So you got this huge guy, which was a lot more mobile than Big Daddy was and was doing a hell of a lot more, you know, much more intimidating than Big Daddy. Really just going to bury Big Daddy for the whole show. Why not? I mean, I mean, I think it's fair to say that most people were more mobile than Big Daddy. I, I think, well, you know, apart from myself, but... Um, and, and 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 that was it really. I just got hooked from that moment on, and I just I, I watched it. And I I, t- I tell you what, watching this pay per view back, I've seen bits of it, but when I watched it in full, would have been on. Now I, I never know whether it's DFS or DSF. One of the DS, DSF. Yes, Deutsche Sports Fernsehen. Give it his full name. What one of them? Yeah, you know, one of them's a furniture company as well. So that's that's yeah. The, a bit of a Russo swerve there. Um, so it's really weird watching this back with proper commentary because I'm so used to the German commentary and I want little Ollie M and there was another guy called Peter something who I think... Peter William. There you go. Yes, there Peter go. William. He was one of the promoters with, um, I think, with Otto Vance or something. Yeah. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. So it was... And, and, and that's how I used to watch WCW. It would be like the, the, the wee hours... Of, of a night of a weekend, there would be Saturday night would come on, and then occasionally you'd have well, they would show most of the pay per views and an abundance of Red Bull adverts. But there you go, I don't know, it's all just coming back to me now. So that that was around ninety four, ninety five. We lost Sky um, at that point, so we lost the ability to get this wonderful channel. So it didn't really, although I kept up through Power Slam, didn't really see a lot of WCW until you know they they came on to TNT. Uh, and of course, it was a completely different beast at that point. So, mm-hmm. but you know, as, as I say, I mean, for me, I started as a manager, and uh, I, yeah, I had a, a disaster of running my own company in around 2009. And at the moment, we're in a much better place because I get to be one one of the commentators for Discovery Wrestling, which is a really, um, in my opinion, I'm very biased. There's a really good company up in Scotland based in Edinburgh. Now, I was going to say, yeah, I've been to um, a Discovery show because it, it coincided with a trip. I've got friends in Edinburgh and it coincided with a, with a trip up there. ICW obviously gets all the attention in Scotland because of their because of their um, affiliation with the WWE. And I, I always think Discovery Wrestling is kind of one of the unsung heroes of the Scottish wrestling scene. So, you know, for people who may not be aware, what you know, tell us a bit about Discovery Wrestling, please. Discovery is um, it's it's more of a family based thing, but we do stretch it a little bit as well, to be honest. So like we've got Joey Ryan coming on May sixth, so you know you're gonna have a bit of shenanigans there. But we really pride ourselves on the slogan: "It's all about the wrestling." So you're not gonna go out there and see long twenty minute promos. It's it's gonna be solid wrestlers from around the world. I mean, you know, just a year ago it came up on my Facebook on this day. We had an event with over a thousand people there to see Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks. Um, we had Cody Rhodes and the Young Bucks back at the end of last year. We had a, a fantastic match in January, just gone, um, which thanks to the stupid snow was the last show we've we've done this year. So we're looking forward to getting back up there for May with Zack Sabre Jr. and Joe Coffey. And so and 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 also with Discovery now recently just announced that they've signed a deal with Fight TV. So uh, we'll be up on that as well. So it's it's a really I recommend everybody. It's at Disco Wrestling on Twitter. Putting the plugs in now. Why not? Go and have a look. Go and have a look. There's a lot of footage up on YouTube. There's a lot of footage on the Facebook page, which is Discovery Wrestling. A lot of free stuff. 
including that show with Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks. So lots of good stuff. You can, and of course, you get to hear my fantastic voice along with my commentary partner, Randy Valentine. And you said there's there's a big show that's coming up. So just tell us a little bit about that. Uh, May the 6th, it's going to be uh, Joey Ryan against uh, another really comical, uh, popular wrestler called DCT. Uh, there's another another match that's been announced there, which is Joe Coffey who's defending the Y Division Championship, uh, which is our version of the, the main belt. Um, the Y being in the Discovery, which is really for Y generation. That's what it what what it was, which is the where we're aiming at now is the Y generation. So it's going to be Joe Coffey against BT Gunn against Aspen Faith, who last year won the Hotter and Hell tournament which gave him the ability to have a title shot whenever he wanted. And he's chosen the event in May 6th, which is at the Jam House in Edinburgh, which is an, a nice venue, which uh, has got a balcony. So hopefully one day somebody will jump off that balcony and hopefully it won't be me. That, that is such a good name of a venue as well, the Jam House. The Jam, a fun fact, though, the Jam House was uh, designed, the look of it, because there's a lot of music venues uh, go on there, by Jules Holland. Really? There you go. Wow. Fun fact. So it's <clears throat> it's got his handiwork all around it, and there's some some very odd and strange paintings if you ever get the chance to go in there to go and have a look at them. So is, is the Jam House the one that's slap bang in the middle of the city centre? Yes. Excellent. I thought it was. Yes, that is. Yes, that's a very well positioned venue. But um, no, Discovery Wrestling is fantastic. It's well worth uh, well worth keeping an eye on them and uh, checking them out. So also on May the 5th, there's Reckless Intent Wrestling, which is at the Muriston Scout Hall. Don't ask me to spell that. In Muriston Livingston in Scotland. You can find Reckless Intent at official underscore R-I-T-V. And that is where I've brought back the Goss Dynasty. And current members, and I'm saying current because I'm going to add more, are uh, the great Dicky Divers and the king of hardcore, Mr. News. They, we will all be in action, and I will be there to cause a bit of chaos. Uh, and this is where you, you are the, the heel manager extraordinaire. I, I am. I've, they've, they've persuaded me um, to come back and do some managing, even though I promised I'd retired. And much like Terry Funk, who I understand you managed at one point, Dean. I don't like to talk about it, really, Gossy. No, no. So um, let's get cracking with, with Spring Stampede 94, then. Um, as we said, a, a good pay-per-view. And, and Liam, we're, we're saying before we, we went on air that, as we'll discover later on, this is um, this is one of the last pay-per-views before the WCW Hulk Hogan era. Yeah, uh, we won't segue too much into the Hulk era itself because, well, let's face it, we've said plenty about it already. And there are so many other pay-per-views featuring Hulk Hogan to go into footed on. But... Yeah, this is an interesting period. Um, if I have my reading of the observers up to speed and in line properly, around this period, um, Hulk Hogan had agreed to sign for WCW, but there was a stipulation from his time at WWE, or WWF at the time, that if anyone else made an offer to sign him, they had the right to attempt to match or better the offer and if they did match the offer they could have him uh, and I think they're at this period now so basically WCW were just waiting for WWF who were about to have their owner go through a steroid trial 
the steroid distribution trial, confirmed that they didn't want Hulk Hogan back. Uh, so it was, a, it was a formality, but like with most due diligence things, you have to go through it all. Uh, but yeah, they it didn't stop WCW from making references to, to Hulk Hogan. Obviously, the, the, the plan was to have Flair Hogan for the title, and you know, Flair had made references inviting Hogan to come sit ringside for his main event match with Ricky Steamboat. And cruelly enough, WCW said that he would definitely be in that seat on their Saturday night program which is as blatant fucking false advertising as you can get and is one of many many times they pulled shit like this I didn't realise that I, I mm. mean I, I, yeah do you, as, as you say they, they do sort of vaguely mention that that Flair's invited him but I had no idea they'd made such promises it gets lost in the shuffle a lot when people wonder why WCW failed to uh, move the needle much before Hogan and why things fell through uh, afterwards obviously there there are major reasons especially for the latter but it gets lost in the shuffle just how much they were guilty of false advertising confusing advertising and that stuff you know considering the, the die hard fan base they had in the south that we have mentioned many times this podcast things like that it will chip away at even a, a reliable fan base indeed um because th- this is one thing there that, about this we're coming from the the rosemont horizon in chicago which is a venue when i hear the name of it i immediately associate with big WWF events from, from the 80s and early 90s. Mm. Um, and, you know, there usually was a stronghold. In fact, WWF had had a house show there just one month later, and that was their last event at the Rosemont Horizon before they moved to um, the new United Center in Chicago. So this was really WCW going out of their usual territory. We start off with uh, a one-minute intro package which lists the featured bouts and has a brief sentence or two to summarise the background of these matches. Um, it doesn't exactly ooze uh, hype and excitement, but it does the job very well of putting you, the viewer, in the picture, which is something that in previous episodes they haven't always done. In fact, some episodes have, they've more or less given us a, an epileptic seizure, so kudos to them for that. And we have the show is uh, introduced. The first person we see is Mean Gene Oakland, who uh, has put so much fake tan on that he looks like a raisin. Um, and then we have Aaron Neville singing the American National Anthem. And interestingly, our commentators here are Tony Schiavone and Bobby the Brain Heenan. Um, Heenan's wearing the most 90s outfit ever, a multicolored pattern bow tie matching cummerbund with a bright red jacket. Schiavone, we always like the old Tony Schiavone hyperbole watch. He calls Flair v. Steamboat one of the greatest rivalries in the history of our sport. But I think on this occasion, it's actually fair to say he's probably right. He he is, but I do love his use of this great sport, which is would be, go on to become one of his greatest cliches. Indeed. Absolutely. And, and uh, episode by episode, we, we like to track Tony Schiavone's exaggeration. Um, but, yeah, you know, I said on, on this occasion, I think he's, he's got a fair point. So this is just Bobby Heenan's second ever pay-per-view for WCW. He debuted a Clash and then um, started out at Super Bowl Four. And obviously there's a there's a bit of a, could we call it a power struggle here? Because you've got him and you've got Jesse Ventura both in the same place at the same time. Uh, by the sounds of it, according to the Observer, it weren't much for struggles. It was Jesse Ventura getting the old heave-ho. He showed up to the event assuming he would handle commentary duties alongside Giovanni. 
and he found out he wasn't and he was basically used in a very peripheral manner alongside Gene Oakland for a couple of bits doing backstage interviews and yeah I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I'm guessing he I'd, I'd, I'd have to dig it up to be certain but I'm guessing that uh, Super Rule 4 was not on the books for Jesse otherwise he'd have been a bit seething about that instead or in addition to but but yeah he weren't too happy at Spring Stampede and that's a shame because other than that he looked like a million dollars didn't he Dean <laughs> yes we'll cover that in a moment um, but um, yeah I mean Jesse Ventura this was the beginning of the end for him in WCW he left um, in July so only you know a couple of months later on but he was uh, he was gone from the promotion which does make me remember I don't know if you guys have read Eric Bischoff's book Controversy Creates Cash part of the reasoning for this is probably the fact that Bischoff was not a Jesse Ventura fan at all and those two have gone back and forth even up to within the last few years I believe as to uh, Jesse Ventura's professionalism or lack thereof at WCW so I don't know who's telling the truth exactly there but yeah it's one, I think it was one of them things where Boston employee just weren't going to see eye to eye and the writing was on the wall when you have Bobby Heenan you know some things can be said positive and negative about his performances at WCW and I'll definitely get into that for this show but when you've got someone who can handle Jesse's job and you don't like Jesse, it's only a matter of time, I guess. Yeah. One other thing I just wanted to throw in there as well is the Hogan factor. Because let's not forget that uh, Jesse Ventura back in the day tried to start a union. Yes. And Hogan put the kabam on that. Now all of a sudden you've got Hogan coming in and now uh, Hogan and Heenan were close. So Hogan's do- uh, he- sorry, Heenan's doing the commentary. Uh, I don't know. There could be something there as well. I'm just uh, trying to work out who the uh, who the person you can rely on to tell the truth is the wrestling promoter or the politician turned conspiracy theorist? <laughs> There's no truth in wrestling. It's just a tough call, you know, it's, it's a tough call. Okay, let's move on to our opener. Uh, it's Johnny B. Bad versus Diamond Dallas Page, who keeps cropping up at various eras in these broadcasts. I think he's probably our most covered wrestler so far in uh, because WCW so Johnny B. Bad comes out with his uh, big glitter gun that's not a euphemism um, out comes a heel page chomping on cigar accompanied by uh, his real life Mrs. Kimberly Bad is completely in charge for the opening few minutes and unlike previous pay-per-views we've looked at this is a basic opener featuring two big characters to warm the crowd up for the feature matches to come uh, a big left hand sends Page to the floor. Bad leaps onto him with a dive over the top. Follows this up once Page is back in with a spectacular-looking sunset flip off the top rope onto Page for the three count, uh, which I seem to remember from the era of WCW Worldwide on ITV that this came from. There was a, a, a signature move of his. It was a short match. In, in reality, it was a it was a glorified squash, really, wouldn't you say, Gossy? Oh, I, I suppose it was. It was a fun little opener, I think, to start off. The crowd, I've noticed the crowd was very hot, mm. um, which is always a good thing. Now, if you, if you look in two years' time, these guys would, around this time would be having quite the feud and we'd be putting on some, I thought, really, really good matches. And I think looking at Paige here, and if you can look at him again, like, you know, it'd be a two years before, you can really see the improvement as to where by 96, 97, he's becoming one of the top guys in the company. But I, th- I thought it was good. I mean, Johnny B. Bad's outfit, well, outfit was, well, it, I hope the guy was getting paid a lot of money for that. <laughs> it, 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 it was what it was. And 
And always good to see Kimberly as well. Tremendous. But I mean, you're you're absolutely right. The 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 difference between DDP of '94 and the DDP of of a few years later is like night and day. The selling, yeah. the movement, the character work, everything is is so much better. So it's quite yeah, it's quite interesting to to watch him at, at this point of uh, of his career development. Um, Liam, as as a man who loves talking about the art of the opener, what did you make of this one? Oh, as far as the art of the opener goes, this was absolutely fantastic. As a as a match itself, it was okay. But as you said, it was short, which which in this instance is great. You've got two characters who can get a crowd going at the start of a pay-per-view. And to be honest, you get the impression these are... You know, you've got to remember the timeline of these two guys. These are two wrestlers who aren't exactly high on the totem pole and who have very animated gimmicks, especially at this point. And... They have put the work in, and they've put the personality in uh, to to make it work, and I love it. And it, uh, the best thing about this for me is this is the this is the start of well, well, we covered uncensored '96 very recently. This is the start of a two-year on and off rivalry between Bad and Page that would open many pay-per-views that would feature on even more pay-per-views, and their matches would only get better and better. Bad was pretty good at this point. They were gearing him up to be Stunning Steve's next challenger for the US title, and he, those two wrestled on the next pay-per-view for the title, but... At this point, he would continue to get even better, but he was at a point where he could really, he 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 could carry a match. And DDP, you know, he he would script his matches a lot, and it shows a bit here. Probably helped them to really go through it at this stage. But their their matches, you know, in in like late '95, early '96, were were legit good, and it's a credit to both of them. So I have that little sentimental value because I, you know, I remember so many times where these two would intertwine. So I like that, just coming back and go, oh look, it's where it all started. But um, I, I have to point out a couple of things I liked is the, the, the you remember we we talked about DDP's sheer commitment to his character at Uncensored '96, where he came out looking dishevelled because he'd lost all that money. Mm. Um, they were talking about him. Having good, this was had nothing to do with that bingo win angle, but they were talking about him, you know, having a nice bit of money for whatever reason. And case in point, he comes out and he gives a a, a gift, or via the he, he gives the Diamond Doll a gift to give to Bobby Heenan, and suddenly Bobby Heenan is singing his praises non-stop on commentary. I like little things like that. And I think that's a fantastic idea. I think more a presence and awards should be given to commentators, quite frankly. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Definitely, and I'm just um, saying, you know, yeah. If anyone on the Discovery or IPW rosters are listening to this, then um, you know, I, I will be offended by cash, no problem. <laughs> and I, I no longer commentate, but if someone just wants to give me gifts, then you know, I'm, I'm happy to facilitate that uh, as no, a retrospective not? thank you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, um, Mean Gene then shills. It's the first shill of the WCW hotline, and he is accompanied by. Despite being uh, knocked off the uh, the commentary position, a beaming Jesse Ventura who declares Liam that he feels like a million dollars. <laughs> yeah, so th- this was uh, just after his victory in the lawsuit where he challenged WF for using his voice uh, likeness on video releases. And yeah, it was close to a million dollars, wasn't it? And it, I tell you what, it, 
But according to all reports, uh, he was very close to getting a decision on action figures. And to say that would have opened the floodgates would have been an understatement. And at a time where Vince McMahon was standing trial a few months later as well, can you imagine the landscape if if all of that hit the fan within one summer? So what, did wrestlers not get any royalties for action figures? Well, if, if if the McMahons have their way, they won't even get any royalties for actually working the matches, I don't think. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's easy to imagine. He, he probably expects people to just show up for the love of wrestling and break yeah. their necks and, to, and may, maybe get fed at catering if there's any leftovers. That, that must have changed since since nowadays. Because do you remember there was a story with, um, was it Chris Jericho or someone else? And their other half bought them a... Like bought their action figure from his a, book. Yeah, the, uh, when, yeah. When it rang up on the till, it came up as a Hulk Hogan figure, which meant that Hogan would get the royalties. And not, I don't know if it was Jericho or not. I can't remember. But that was WCW. That was yeah. WCW. That was happening. That was from one of the autobiographies. Uh, we have to look that one up. Okay, so second match is one that looks tremendous on paper. It's the uh, for the world television title, Brian Pillman against Lord Stephen Regal. And uh, strange enough, for the, for the second match of the night, they've wheeled out Michael Buffer for the intros. Um, so Pillman is still wearing his old Hollywood blondes gear, but he's now back to being a babyface, and to me looks pretty awkward about it. Regal is accompanied by Sir William, who is... Bill Dundee, who uh, his name is mentioned on the credits at the end of the show under wrestling operations. And I know we've discussed this before, but there's one of the things I always loved about WCW pay-per-views with all the long credits you'd get at the end. You'd try and pick out the real names of people that you knew. Good old Virgil Runnels. Virgil Runnels. Ah, uh, yes. And and uh, on this one, we have Alan Rogowski. Yes, uh, the happiest man in wrestling. <laughs> Indeed, Ole Anderson. Um, so, yes, um, Bill Dundee's in a suit and bowler hat. Never quite understood why he would have been knighted as a servant, but hey. Uh, waving a, a tiny Rougeau-style Union Jack. Buffer repeats at the end of his intros that it's a 15-minute time limit, which then makes me immediately think of that as a giveaway to the finish. The irony here, I, I found, this is like, comparing 1994 to 2018, the commentators emphasise how a 15-minute time limit isn't long, so you really have to take it to the champion, whereas I think nowadays, 15 minutes would be considered a reasonably long TV match. Yes, absolutely. It's And it was, it was a common uh, trend as well with Regal's matches at this point uh, that he'd escape by the skin of his teeth with that 15-minute time limit. And I liked it. It was good. You know, he always got a good heel reaction. I, I think looking at this match, maybe the crowd were getting a bit tired by some of the mat work um, because it's foreign to them. But yeah. it's 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 it, it was a, it, this I I really enjoyed this match and I've, I've got one of my notes so I've written down I've written down notes, folks. Is that any young aspiring uh, babyface wrestlers should watch Pillman just for the amazing fire he's got in this match. His yeah. comeback, everything. Yeah, I mean this is. This is one of those matches where it it makes the the title mean something because Pillman clearly you know he's putting across that he wants to be wants to be the champion. I mean so so true to this format, he takes it to Regal at a high tempo, and he's displaying a much more aggressive attitude compared to his previous babyface run when he had the old you know Cincinnati Bengals trunks. Um, Regal is trying to slow the pace 
right down. He'd been the TV champion for, for seven months by this point. And Shivani mentions there's, there is a background to this match, which is that Pillman had been one half of the world tag team champions with Steve Austin, but he got injured. And um, Regal subs for Pillman um, in a title defense at a Clash of the Champions event against uh, the bizarre pairings, when you look back at it, of Arn Anson and Paul Roma. Um, and they'd lost the belt. So, so Pillman wanted to cost Regal his singles title in much the same way that he felt Regal had cost him his tag title. Gary Michael Capetta, who is our other ring announcer, is doing the time calls. Obviously, that's beneath Michael Buffer. That, and that adds to the drama. Um, and as the clock is ticking down, Pillman's becoming more aggressive in his pursuit of victory. Regal tries to ground him. Pillman's trying to keep it vertical. Um, and the final minute of the match, as the crowd totally engaged, the two end up spilling over the top rope to the floor. And just as Buffer telegraphed at the beginning, the 15-minute time limit uh, expires. And, I mean, to me, it wasn't spectacular, but this told a great story of a clash of styles, an aggressive challenger trying to win his belt, and the wily champion trying to keep his belt by running down the clock, um, which was, as you say, uh, Gossi, it was sort of, you know, it was typical of, of many of Regal's matches in, in yeah. his quite long reign as TV champ. One of the, I mean, for me, this is the uh, the Stephen Regal that I love. Mm. Um I, you know, I, I never really saw him ever be as good as this again, be it with a character. Maybe he was a bit too cartoonish for some people, but I just loved it. I loved the combination with Bill Dundee, which worked as long as he never spoke. Uh, it was it was just great. I mean, I, I really, really enjoyed this match. I'd completely forgotten about it. And it, it was just fun to go back and relive that, really, that, you know, almost forgotten part of wrestling where people would get excited by a time limit draw. Yeah, I mean, bear in mind, you know, when, when Regal came over to WCW, did he started out as plain old Steve Regal, because I, yeah. I remember um, Liam and I have talked many times about our memories of Saturday afternoon ITV WCW Worldwide, and I remember a match, I think it was in 93, between him and Barry Windham, um, ironically might have even been for the TV title, and all of a sudden I'm like, hang on a minute, I remember this guy from World of Sport, and he didn't really get over because he was just a, a generic bland baby face. And as soon as this gimmick and yeah, okay, this gimmick is kind of dated. It's kind of stereotypical, but it, it's, it works for, for America. Um, it really helped launch Regal as a star in the U S and, and Regal himself totally embraced the gimmick, played it up to the full. You know, anyone who's listened to any interviews with him on podcasts, you know, he's never just not taking himself too, too seriously. And after, after this pay-per-view, I'm right in saying Liam, he went on for a, a best of five series with Ric Flair on WCW worldwide. Yeah, indeed. And, and that, yeah. So that really elevated, uh, elevated Regal as well. Yeah. Um, the, the thing about Regal is he would, yeah, during his prime at those, so obviously things kind of fell off with his addiction problems late on, but he would always seesaw between wrestling in proper mid-card, given his, his general status, proper mid-card feuds against proper established mid-carders, not, you know, not openers, not jobbers, but not main eventers either, such as, such as this. With the with the Pillman feud, and then every now and then he'd dip into a little program with someone like Sting, or Ric Flair, 
and he'd do so seamlessly as well. I always, I was always a huge fan of when he went up against Sting because there was definitely a like a, a, a good guy, bad guy dynamic, a proper old school good versus bad dynamic between the two, and they generally had good matches. But but yeah, he would always seesaw between the two situations. I remember that with Sting. It was a pay per view match, wasn't it? Yeah, in '96 they had a really good pay-per-view match. I believe it's, it might have something to do with this pay-per-view, or maybe the next one. But they were trying to tee up um, Sting versus Regal. It may have been Slamboree the following month because they were going to have uh, Rick Rude versus Vader. And obviously, Rick Rude very shortly after Spring Stampede had his career ended. We'll get into that later. But um, I think they were going for. Regal versus Sting, but instead we end up getting Sting versus Vader instead of Rude versus Vader. So I think they always had their eye on they wanted to do, and yeah, as you said, it took them until 1996 to actually pull it off on pay per view. Yeah, Great American Bash '96. And that was I enjoyed that match very much. I'm sure you did as well, Darren. Yes, it was it was a really good match, and again, it's I, I think that's the last pay per view before the whole NWL thing. Yes. So... Um, again, you know, like we talked about before, Hogan. In a way, this this is that was sort of another another era when all of a sudden things completely change. Um, but you know, again, it really, really, really shows what a worker Regal is to be able to just work with anybody. Well, that's not a... a knock on these. Obviously, you know, he's working with Flair and Sting. I'm not knocking anybody yeah. here. Just saying, it shows that really, as you said, he doesn't look out of place working these huge names. Oh yeah, he was super versatile. And the thing that stood out for me about this match is just just the absolute beating he was putting on Pillman, and he looked so slick in doing so. It looked so believable that he was taking Pillman, a very established WCW wrestler, very popular WCW wrestler, to, to, to absolute school, and it really tied into. As you guys said, how good Pillman can sell as a babyface, and how good that comeback eventually was, and it added to great drama. Uh, and I was a big fan of that and many other aspects of this match. But one thing absolutely ruined it for me, as it always did, as you guys touched upon, the TV title situation. I just never got into it. Everyone knew it was a 15-minute time limit. Everyone knew that the Hill Champion would always hang on till the end. It's a business model that. I think in the older days kind of worked a lot more often but I think a lot of the, the key to a lot of that was in the name it was a TV title they would run these matches on television shows on TV tapings and, and they'd get the, the local crowd hoping that the, the baby face would win the title and they'd just come so close time would run out they put these matches on pay-per-view and it just doesn't work yeah, I think it's a testament to both guys that they managed to get the crowd into this because they're very good ring work in was falling flat because of a flawed template and I never was a fan really of the TV title template especially in 90s WCW yeah it is it is a bit strange as you say that you've got this on a pay-per-view because you know the TV shows at this point in time were an hour long generally so that's why you had that 15 minute time limit but having said that I mean you know it's a it's a very entertaining match but one thing I, I can't help but think about as well is that since the you know the Hollywood Blondes were put together almost by accident, tremendously successful, tremendously over, the the team then gets split up. We see the the elevation of Steve Austin compared to Brian Pillman's kind of treading water. Yeah, it was a little bit odd in that both both guys had just signed new contracts, and at one point it was very much up in the air. 
Uh, I know that Paul Heyman was circling. He really wanted to get both Pillman and Austin into ECW at this point. Uh, neither guy was happy about the blondes being split up. Even though they, you know, as you said, Austin was given more of a push on TV with the US title, etc., etc. Both guys thought that the breaking up of the blondes was a sabotage move and it didn't do them any good in the long run. And Pillman, especially, yeah, uh, he's a good baby face, but he's just. Between the blondes and the horsemen, he was just kicking rocks, weren't he? Just trying to do the best he could, having some good matches, but lacking that direction, really. So it was it was interesting because uh, Dave Meltzer believed very much up until the contract was signed that this was going to be Pillman putting Regal over, which at least would have given them the, the creative license to put together a bit more of a a proper match and maybe really controlled the drama rather than just having it come into that last minute of the match. Yeah, and I mean, it's worth noting that, you know, Austin would stick around in WCW for for one more year uh, and then Eric Bischoff infamously thought that a guy in black boots and black trunks wasn't marketable and and off he went to the WWF via ECW. I think we're going to have a field day on that later on in this show. Okay, let's move on. So we go back to the dressing room area where uh, Mean Gene is talking with Colonel Robert Parker and Bunkhouse Bucks look ahead of, to his match against uh, Dustin Rhodes. Um, and um, then we're, we're back to the action. It is time for a match that I was certainly looking forward to watching 20 years later, the Chicago Street Fight. Now, bizarrely, this this match has been given no introduction, no build-up or no background to it in the lead-up to this uh, pay-per-view. So... Essentially, we're we're watching it. Seeing as we're watching these pay-per-views as one-offs, we're kind of watching it it cold. But um, it's a non-title match between the tag team champions, the Nasty Boys, and the team of Cactus Jack and Max Payne. And like a good street fight should be, they're both in kind of street clothes. Not that they really wrestled in conventional gear anyway. Compare this to uh, it, it was uncensored '96 with with Harlem Heat against Sting and, and Road Warrior Hawk, wasn't it? It was uh, Sting, Sting and Booker T versus the Road Warriors. Beg your pardon. Sting and Booker T v the Road Warriors, yes. So WCW have actually planned ahead here. We've got two referees assigned to the match. So I guess, you know, if people split off in pairs, they've got a referee with them because this is Falls Count Anywhere. Uh, Cactus Jack has his awful WCW Slam Jam music's entrance theme. Max Payne is billed rather wonderfully as from the state of euphoria. And as they're walking down the ramp, um, now that's another good thing about WCW pay-per-views, the ramp. Uh, the Nazis come down to meet them, and the fight is on. Um, Bobby Heenan, understandably, gets very nervous about them coming anywhere near his announce table, as we'll see uh, a few years later with the Brian Pillman incident. Sags and Cactus are attacking each other with a pool cue. Cactus does his over-the-top clothesline, which gets a big pop because it was the spot he'd lost his ear on only a, only a few months previously, I think. Yeah, there was talk of him... Um taking some time off after this match to get the ear fixed. But as we know, that never happened. And he was wrestling at Slamboree. Indeed, never happened. Never take time off. Um, chairs and bins are being used. And this is kind of an ECW-style fight before ECW really became a thing nationally. Um, the camera is switching between pairs of combatants very well. Pain and knobs brawl 
by what looks like a blatantly set up merch stand. And then as the action hots up, we use a split screen to show everything that's going on. Cactus is taking a beat and getting at least three clotheslines over the top, including one with the pool cue. Nobs gets slammed through the merch table, gets strangled with a t-shirt. Sags hits Cactus over the back of the head with a table, using his own head as a pivot, which was novel to say the least. Sags and Cactus get back on the ramp. Cactus basically suplexes the table onto a prone Sags on the ramp, which looks absolutely brutal because the table just bounces off him uh then knobs comes back into shop branching a huge shovel sags tries to pile drive cactus through a table but it can't take their weight and it collapses giving them an awkward landing the commentators are going crazy saying they've never seen anything like this before cactus gets shoved off the ramp takes one of his infamous flat back bumps onto the concrete Sags then gets thrown the shovel by Nobs, cracks the motionless cactus over the head with it and gets the pinfall for the win. I mean, the last shovel shot wasn't really needed. I think you could have pinned him just with that back bump, but it added to the, the sheer brutality of the match. I mean, for me, this was every bit as wild as I remembered it from 20 years ago. Um, the commentators were selling it brilliantly. The crowd were loud and they were entertained by it from start to finish. I realise these kind of matches aren't everyone's cup of tea, but I thoroughly enjoyed it myself. Wild, crazy brawl, the change of pace from the previous matches. Uh, gents, what did you think? Well, I'd never seen any ECW at this point. So I'd only ever seen WWF and WCW. So this was insane. This was absolutely crazy. And even watching it back now, it's still <laughs> completely insane and absolutely crazy. My first question, as, as they're, they're doing the, the, the brawl around the shop, why is there a merchandise stand set up in a part where no fans would ever be able to get to? <laughs> yes. I know, I'm bringing logic into wrestling, which you're never supposed to do, but that's the first. And there was no little box with uh, loose change in either. I'm like, where's the box with loose change? Because you can get those pennies and hit them with it. Anyway, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it all builds up to the last, like, two minutes of that match, because even all these years later... Having not watched the match since 1994, I remembered that suplex spot where he suplexes the table onto Sags. I didn't remember him breaking Sags' hip, which it really looked like he did, because the whole weight of the table just landed on Sags' hip. And it like, oh, God, you were thinking maybe maybe it landed on his back or something. But no, it all went on his hip. And, and, and the end of that match, to me, looks worse than the hell in a cell. Threw him off, did the, the back bump off the ramp onto that concrete floor. Then they just threw the shovel onto him, which hit like his leg. And then they picked the shovel up. And it's basically like if you ever sort of hit an animal, you know, you run over an animal and like, oh, look, it's still a bit alive, you know. <laughs> and then yeah. you just take something. And I couldn't do that, but that's what they did. They just, they just killed him. And it was at that point that I realized that Cactus Jack was wearing a Super Dad t-shirt. Yes, he was. They're dead. Um... So it, it was it was absolutely crazy. The other thing I'm I I really really enjoy. Um, I'm going to plug another podcast. Brace yourself. I really enjoy watching the what listening to the what happened when the Tony Schiavone and Conrad Thompson do. And Tony Schiavone has been talking there about the Max Payne thing, which reminded me in this match because here's a guy that in '93 was getting a decent push, '94 was getting a decent push, and then he's gone. Because, you know, here's, here's somebody that he was doing that angle. I think he was blinded accidentally by Johnny B. Bad when Johnny B. Bad shot his load into his face. Other way around. It was the other way around. Yeah, he, he took Bad's Bad Blaster. Because he was a heel early on. 
that yeah. makes much more sense to me because in my head I'm thinking, why is a heel getting blinded? That makes much more sense. But you know, here's a guy that's got a unique look. I mean, in one of uh, one pay per view he played the national anthem while he was a heel on his guitar, and I remember the crowd are like. I don't know how to react to a heel playing a national anthem, so we're going to do nothing. Which then segged into Purple Haze. I think so, yeah. There's something Super like Bowl that, 3. Super Bowl 3, That's that was. It. I've just remembered. That's the how the hell do I remember stuff like that? Yet when I go to the supermarket to get a pint of milk, I buy everything but milk. How does my brain work? <laughs> Hashtag five concussions. Ah, oh, that's one. Yeah, um, I, I do know what happened to Max Payne. Would you like to hear that story? I'm, I'm, well, I've got, I've got an idea, but you carry on. It is a direct result, actually, of this very feud. So, uh, apparently, throughout there, because they feuded for a few months, Jack and Max Payne become like a semi-regular team. Then they entered this feud with, with the Nasty Boys, and Max Payne did not like this feud at all, because... Apparently, the Nasty Boys would insist on calling the match, controlling how the match goes. And as most people know, they are ridiculously stiff, as you see with this match. Basically, as, as we know, the Nasty Boys are not good wrestlers. But one way they stood head and shoulders above was by doing this wild walking brawl, super stiff, super all-over shot. Very realistic when done right. And this, this match is one of their finest examples of that. And he didn't like having to go along with this. And I believe at one match they had before this, he actually gave a little back in one way and recklessly injured Brian Nobbs, which caused Eric Bischoff to go apeshit at him. Uh, and apparently Max Payne went apeshit him back. They had a massive argument and he was in the doghouse since. And it also explains why you'd imagine that the uh, the payoff for this would be Payne and Jack finally winning the titles, but a month later, the uh, the the next hardcore brawl is actually Cactus Jack and Kevin Sullivan. Kevin Sullivan, yeah, yep. where they did the Shattery. old, yeah, they did the old classic two teams that the Nasty Boys hate, two teams the Nasty Boys antagonise. Uh, one member of each team is nudge, nudge, wink, wink on the shelf. So the two remaining people who hate the Nasty Boys team up. I'm a fan of that narrative, that storyline. But yeah, that is the reality behind it. So this is why this was the last significant contribution in WCW of Max Payne. But what a contribution it was. Do you know how... Um, you, you know, most of the time you gauge the success of a wrestling match for a live crowd by... How their their pop, their cheers, their booze. Measure this one and listen closely to the gasps, because it's just co- yeah. ten minutes of the crowd gasping in disbelief at what these teams are doing to each other. And legitimate, because as you guys said, some of these blows are ridiculous. They are at, no wonder Max Payne wasn't happy because we know you know the nasties are happy to get themselves over by subjecting themselves and dishing out this sort of stuff. We know how crazy Cactus Jack is, but Max Payne's like, why am I being dragged in this? You know, you saying about how stiff the uh, the nasty boys are, this just makes me want to go back and watch that Steiner's Nasty Boys match oh. from my cheap now. And you know what? That was more of a traditional match, but they worked their strengths into it. And they had the Steiners to actually carry the wrestling portions. And yeah, this is why so many people, we we always find a way to talk about a match, but this is why that match is so popular with so many people. But um, yeah, the, the, the one thing that really takes me out of this match is, as you guys said, that merchandise stand. 
which mm. is such a shame because this is it's one thing to do a great match it's one thing to do a great hardcore match but the the beauty of this is it is like watching four people legitimately fight four very tough people who can actually manage this for eight minutes rather than being broken up outside the kebab house 30 seconds later uh, and they and they go over to do you know the, the the concession stand thing. It's a it's a little nod and homage to the origin of this sort of realistic fight that comes from like the yeah. Memphis wrestling days where they did it in a concession stand. But to to set that crappy stand up and do a couple of spots really betrays the rest of the match, which is a shame. But yeah, the the finish is just oh, it's sick <laughs> for a couple of spots to make you wince like that and it's not someone you everyone every wrestling fan will always wince when they watch Sid Vicious coming off the top rope like an idiot and shattering his leg but yeah. to to yeah. be able to wince at a planned spot like this that shovel shot would there was zero protection there if he wasn't concussed from that I don't know how I think knowing what we know now about concussions and everything as well makes it much more difficult to watch things like that and unprotected chair shots. Yeah. It's, especially since the Benoit thing, it's, I mean, while it's crazy, like, oh my God, you know, stop, he's already dead sort of in moment that's going on there with Cactus Jack. There's that other part of it that's like, oh God, I don't want to see this. At the time, like you say, you know, without the knowledge that we have now, at the time, yeah. it was those things, the, the flat back bump, the shovel to the head, those are the things that were getting Cactus Jack over with the crowd. Yeah, and I'm 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 very much glad that McFoley seems like part of the way sane to this day, which allows us to you know we'll have that wins, but it allows us to appreciate the match still. Unlike watching Benoit do a diving headbutt off a ladder, that really gets your mind going. But um, yeah, one another thing about this match I really liked is yeah they bring the violence and that's that's what everyone remembers. But if you look closely, there's a lot of storytelling going on as well especially with you look at the shovel itself is a, a weapon that Cactus Jack f even from his early heel days going through his character development he was kind of semi-associated with and he would carry around with him some of the time yeah. so for them to grab that and put that to use on him there's a nice bit of storytelling there and the, when the day comes that we cover Slambury 1994 and the blow off to this particular feud there's even more nods and homages there that I really appreciate, including a cameo from Max Payne himself, even though he wasn't in the match. And if you look at where, <laughs> let's think about poor Max Payne, where he ended up. Here's a guy who's got such a, a pivotal match. Here. He retired so a decade many... later. There you go. And and then the next thing is where he was Man Mountain Rock in the WWF. Mm. That's where I remember him next. But he had that amazing guitar. That was the WF logo on it. Do you remember that? And that picture, that render of him shrugging his shoulders that WrestleCrap loves so much. And I don't blame him for loving it so much. And that's really it. I mean, I I don't think he did. He ever have one pay per view match? I don't think he did. No, but he I did play he the he played the anthem at the '95 Royal Rumble, but oh. without but without the heel twist. <laughs> But no, he was uh, in in WWF. I remember watching him and really wanting him to succeed, and he just it was seemed to be a, a wasted opportunity. But, but I think they put him with Bob Backlund, which was never a tremendous idea considering. <laughs> 
Yes. I mean, I love the Bob Backman character. But anyway, anyway, back to anyway, that's back to uh, back to the show. So we go backstage to Jesse Ventura. Johnny B. Bad is being interviewed, and uh, as Liam mentioned earlier, he declares he wants to challenge the winner of the U.S. Heavyweight Title match that's coming up next. And so that is uh, stunning, as he's known, stunning Steve Austin, the champion defending against the great Muta, who, as always, looks awesome in his entrance gear. Uh, Austin comes out to the old Hollywood Blondes music. He's accompanied by Colonel Robert Parker. Uh, it's a cagey start to the match, probably to calm the crowd down after the last match to be able to bring them back up again later. Um, for no apparent reason, Aaron Neville decides mm-hmm. to come down and sit next to Bobby Heenan to watch this, and he stays there for the rest of the pay-per-view, and I think no one really wants to tell him to, to go away because he's a special guest. Um, Heenan's brilliant in this and singing Neville's praises to his face after slating him previously. Parker trips up Muta, which distracts the challenger that allows Austin to knock Muta out of the to the floor where Parker attacks him. Um, and at this point, the pace of the match begins to pick up. Um, Mutar misses the top rope drop kick. He then hits uh, Austin with a stun gun, which is Austin's own move, and that gets a pop, as does uh, his vaunted handspring elbow into the corner. Mutar lands a top rope hurricane runner, then kicks Parker. The crowd are lapping this up. Austin then charges at Mutar, who backdrops him over the top rope, and that causes a uh, a cheap DQ finish. I would imagine this finish was probably brought about by politics between WCW and New Japan. But for me, these two just didn't seem to click together. And it was kind of, it, it should have been a lot better than it really was. I, I was expecting a lot more. I'll be honest. When you see these two names, obviously history is going to remember Steve Austin and Stone Cold, but the great Muta is always going to be the great Muta. Go back to that amazing run he had when he first appeared in '89 in WCW and just blew everyone away. Oh, he was—he uh, was just something that no one had ever seen before. Yeah, absolutely incredible, and it just—it just wasn't there. I mean, I was much more excited because I was such a huge fan of um, of Rob Fuller. I was to see Rob Parker there at ringside and just see oh, he's amazing. So I, again, I went back like when I was a kid, just watching the managers really. Uh, but it, it was, it was. I mean, it was all right. But I mean, it it wasn't helped by the screwy finish, definitely. Um, and I hated that over the top rope thing. I mean, nobody else. I don't think anybody else did it apart from WCW. And then in the end, they just dropped it without ever mentioning it again. And uh, I don't know. It was, it was, a, it was a letdown. It, it was a letdown. But as you say, probably a lot of politics involved. But still. Historically, you've got Steve Austin versus Great Muta, and that's always good to see. Yeah, if you uh, if you think of what I was saying about the Pillman Regal match being a contest where two great workers were really hamstrung by the situation of the booking and the the context of the wrestling, and then we get this, which is at times fifty. I mean, between having to follow that hardcore fight. Between yeah, whatever w- was causing that ridiculous finish, which really sad it because, as Dean said, the the crowd wanted to get behind this. They were into Muta's shenanigans. They appreciated the tempo that the two could put together, even though they weren't completely on the same page. I think a lot of diehard wrestling fans and insiders would say, given Muta's tendency to 
dog it in America any time when it isn't 1989. Uh, I think a lot of people were refreshed that he was going at two-thirds speed. Mm. But it, there was it, there was enough about this to to make you wonder what could have been with maybe if they're going to follow that match it needs to be a little shorter um, it's a smart move on paper to go for mat wrestling to start to contrast what they've what they've just followed but if you think about it the the name on the marquee for this you know the main event match is basically they're promising a, another leg of the ultimate mat wrestling clinic the trilogy between flair and steamboat that's the main event so anything for me that went the mat wrestling route was always going to suffer because that is flair and steamboats rolling a card so everything worked against the two of them here which is a shame because this is a sort of match we should be looking back very fondly at yeah i mean i've you know i've got my own personal experience of of Japanese wrestling politics from when I was um, with RQW and you know we would we would have you know there were matches I remember when I, I took over the book and we had matches that had already been been advertised between a British wrestler and a Japanese wrestler um, from Pro Wrestling Noah this would have been um, and even if you know even if one of our titles was on the line and the, the, we wanted the Brit to go over. It, it couldn't be by, we were told, oh, it can't be by pinfall. The office won't allow it. It'd have to be, you know, a DQ or a draw or something. And if you, you know, if you went against that, then you risked not being able to use any pro wrestling, no wrestlers anymore. In fact, the only guy who was allowed to really go over was Doug Williams because he was a pro wrestling, no contracted wrestler at the time. So it, it, it does make things very difficult. Although I would, you know, I would say surely with something like this, if it, you know the political situation, you know, if that's the case, don't put Mutar in a in a title match. You know, put him against someone else who he can go over, and it won't matter so much. It, it's they've kind of painted themselves into the corner there, in, in in my opinion. Yeah, it's almost like these two were the loose pieces when setting up the card. The two names yeah. they went to put on the show, but they had nothing. You know, everything else was falling into place. And they were like, well, we'll put them together. And everything on paper was so much better than how it transpired, which is a shame. This is a sort of match we should be... This is, this is a historian's match, really, to, to be able to look back at Austin and Muta going at it. And it was okay, and it was disjointed. Okay, so um, moving on, we have a, a backstage interview with Dustin Rhodes, and then uh, we have Michael Buffer not getting his cue right, and it is time for... What is billed as the WCW International World Championship match? So this is the first time on because WCW that we have we have touched upon this uh, this situation. The big gold belt, as it was, which was now called the WCW International Title, and, and Liam, I believe this was all about the split between WCW and the NWA. Yes. Oh my God. This is you know sometimes I enjoy backtracking through the history of saying but this, this was a fucking mess ah uh, so yeah but by this stage basically the cliffs notices by this stage um the famous big gold belt that the nwa title was known for through the 80s belonged to rick flair and so they found themselves in a situation where two belts and it's you, you know the the end result is obvious there's one brilliant belt and there's one title with the company's lineage so you do the unification right wrong they dragged this out for over a year 
and that's that's the shameful part of it because you know you 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 have the belts going around you have the two guys go I'm champion I'm champion even if you draw it out but you actually you know if you you have them on television disputing the other guy and you can still build to it for, you can even get away with it for over a year but instead they acted very much like the WWE have since when they have a raw on the smackdown title only with even less sense and that's where we are thankfully we're getting to the point where they you know, will be unified very soon. But in the meantime, we've got WCW main event guys who they don't quite want in the main event at this specific moment fighting over it in the middle of the card. Uh, and Sting and Rick Rude have, have gone at it so many times. But the the one plus point on that is, that, you know, I think it's impossible for them to have a, a bad match, even if the matches aren't great sometimes, especially with... Rude at this point, he's breaking down and he'd soon suffer the, the famous injury in a rematch of, of this match in Japan. He would he would suffer that injury that pretty much you know finished him off as an in-ring competitor for good. Uh, and another thing going for I don't know if you guys remember the actual build for this match. Do you, do you remember a contract signing sort of? No. So, the, I, the, I love this. This, this. Again, this is, a, this is you know classic Saturday night style stuff. Rick Rude came out for a squash and had attractive ladies waiting to swoon over him and get a kiss and get autographs. So he signs the autographs, beats the crap out of this dude. I think he does an interview where he says about how Sting doesn't deserve a title shot. Sting comes out and shows him that he's signed for a title match because the autographs from the women actually had a contract under it. And for some reason that was legal and binding. But even though it is very legally iffy, <laughs> I thought it was very entertaining. It was a classic pro wrestling-y thing. Uh, and more importantly, Sting, for once in his career, wasn't the dumbest man on the roster. <laughs> I do like that. That does look at it's a, it's on Daily Motion. Look it up. I think Sting Rude contract will get. Yeah, there was a brief clip of it on the pay per view on the on the recap somewhere. I do because I, I did see that on this on this show somewhere. I think it might that. have been in the intro. But yeah, look it up. It's it's worth watching. It's this classic old school pro wrestling. Yeah. Naff, naff, but very entertaining. Yeah, I mean, looking at the the international world title. Like you said, I mean, it, it started out September 93 was when the NWA withdrew their recognition and WCW left the NWA. And then it wasn't universe. We had eight different title reigns. Uh, Flair, Rude, Hiroshi Hase, Rude again, Sting, Rude again, Sting again, back to Flair. And then Flair and Sting met at Clash of the Champions 27, um, which was which was two months later in June 94. Um, to to unify those belts and the mess was was over. Yeah. Did they go back then to having the big gold belt as the world championship? Yes. yes. Yeah. The unification was you know the WCW title was lineage, but then they picked this belt to be the representative of it. So that was the merger yeah. there. But yeah, it's it's funny you say big gold belt because this title had such an identity crisis before they eventually settled on the international world title which is terrible, but it's a lot better than... There was a short period of time. I'm trying to remember exactly when. It might have been when uh, Rude won the belt from Flair. I could be wrong. I stand to be corrected. But there was a point where they actually called it, on the broadcasts, the Big Gold Belt. Nice. They were literally fighting for the Big Gold Belt. Why? Hey. <laughs> but 
Yeah. If only that could be written on the belt. Yeah, it should be. That should be the nameplate, shouldn't it? I, hi, I'm a big gold belt. How can I help you today? Yeah. <laughs> Please so, say um, hello to me. It's my first day. So um, before Rude can do his usual mic work, Harley Race, who is wearing the same jacket as Bobby Heenan, comes into the ring, declares that Vader wants to face the winner. Uh, Race tries to attack Sting, gets beaten up for his troubles, taking a posting into the corner and going over the top rope, which is quite a good bump for a 51-year-old man. Uh, Rude goes on to attack Sting, but Sting fends him off, starts fighting Rude while he still has his robe on. Um, Rude takes one of his insanely high backdrops, and the crowd, the crowd are loving this because I, I don't know about you, Gossy, but there is some something about the visual of a wrestler still in his entrance robe getting beaten up that is always appealing. Oh yeah, because it's different. It's something that it stands out. Something that's not the norm is always good, unless you're Vince Russo, bro. Bro. Um, bro. <laughs> so um, once the match settles down, Rude takes over. Um, he makes sure he's taunting the crowd and keeping them engaged at the same time. Trying to keep... Uh, the, the story is that Rude is trying to keep the match at his pace, not Sting's pace. Um, the more Rude taunts, the more Sting sells, the more the crowd are getting into it. Um, Sting does whatever the Sting equivalent of hulking up is and takes over, but then the ref gets caught in the corner, hit with a Stinger splash where he's sandwiched between Rude and the corner. Um, Sting locks in the Scorpion Deathlock, but the ref is down. Um, Harley Race runs down, but Sting attacks him again. Vader comes down. Sting's beating them all down. Um, Rude chop blocks Sting's knee from behind. Um, Rude then the finish comes and Rude actually almost does goes to this early and has to sort of kill for time kill a bit of time at first but Rude tries to set up the Rude Awakening neckbreaker uh, Race comes in with a chair goes to hit Sting Sting moves Race hits Rude in the back Sting punches Race out of the ring and pins Rude to win the title so a bit of a, a, an odd finish in it this whole pay per view actually made Harley Race look terrible um, but. Unlike the previous match, to me, Sting and Rude always had such amazing chemistry in there. Much like Flair and Steamboat later, their characters were polar opposites of each other, and they always made for a great match. And actually, think about it, if you swap the combatants around, we had a tremendous Rick Rude-Rick Steamboat feud in WCW, and obviously Flair and Sting was always a good bet as well. So, yeah, this just cemented to me how how Rick Rude was one of the all-time great heels with a, a timeless gimmick and always made himself instantly unlikable. Absolutely. I can't, I can't really add a lot more onto that. Um, it was sad watching this match because I'm thinking, right, this is around the time where Rude's going to be finished. And I, I, I went on to cage match and literally has like, I think two more matches and that's it. Uh, so this was his last his last pay-per-view as a wrestler, not his last pay-per-view appearance for WCW, because he'd come back later in the 90s, late 90s. Um, I, I noticed as well, as you said, when Harley came out with a red coat on, Heenan's at ringside with a red jacket on as well. Um, you know, Regal must be walking around thinking he's back at Butlins. So, slightly <laughs> dated reference. Um, but, I mean, play, uh, play and Sting. Sting and Rude always had good stuff together. You know, Rude was... Uh, Rude is just so good, you know, and then so you're thinking, oh, this is sad. Then I'm back thinking, oh, this is sad because the Dangerous Alliance was ended too early, like the Hollywood Blondes were. And that's, that's, a, that's a running theme with WCW. They've either got something really good and they get rid of it too quickly, 
or oh, they keep it going for far, far, far too long. NWO. But yeah, it was it was a good match. I noticed at the end that there was there was a there was blood, there was blood on Sting's back, mm. and there was blood on the ref shirt as well. And um, couldn't figure out where it was coming from until later in the show. Uh, Rude does a promo backstage, and his nose appears to be busted open. So if you're watching this and wondering where the blood's come from, I think it was probably from that, not not from. If it wasn't somebody for Harley Race, that chair shot could have been terrifying. You know, yes, hit me in the back of the neck. That sounds a great idea, but Harley, Harley for once, not for once, but you know, Harley left to bust people open, but safe as houses with that chair shot. Unique finish. I can't remember ever seeing a finish like that before. Um, right. Someone's a neck breaker and they move. And it, it, it was good. It was a good match. Um, I didn't like Vader come in, just getting completely beaten up. Because uh, Vader was totally fresh. Stinger just had a match. I don't think that helped Vader. So maybe if Vader just hadn't come out, it wouldn't have really bothered yeah. things that much. Because he didn't um, actually do anything, really, did he? No, he so he didn't need to be there. He just, yeah. you know, he got Harley raced, really. He just came out and got beaten up as no, Harley yeah. raced. You, ju- you just say that Vader's really preparing for his big grudge match, and he's not noticed that his manager's going, doing a bit of business and getting beaten yeah. up. It's it's feasible that he would be that concentrated. So, it's, yeah, it lacks a bit of logic there, which is a shame. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I mean, yeah, just looking up, it was... Uh, wrestling Don Taku '94, which was on May the first in Fukuoka, Japan, and that's where Rude and I, I think it was Sid Liam. It's on YouTube. Rude catches Sting on the um, on a plancher over the top rope and catches his the the lower back on the edge of a raised platform. That was kind of similar to when Shawn Michaels caught his lower back on the edge of a, a casket in the match with the Undertaker. Similar sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, Rude actually won the match, but then they had to find a, a, a get-out clause and return the belt to Sting um, because, yeah, as you say, it's the last. So we're literally the last. This is the last couple of weeks of Rick Rude's active wrestling. Career. They they did uh, they did find and, and it wasn't too bad. It was you know to, the way they used Nick Bockwinkel's commissioner was to really stretch logic. But the the way they uh, worked out of it was quite good. And it will get it, when we get to the stage where we uh, cover Slambury '94. That is all covered in in due process. There, that's pretty much where it all goes down. Indeed. I, I also I also. Love as well the little interactions you were having with Heenan and Bockwinkle because of course it was such a great tandem in the AWA uh, Heenan at one point when Tony Schiavone starts talking to him he says don't start talking to him he'll never shut up <laughs> <laughs> so it's just just a little little knocks back and forth between two guys there that was that was really enjoyable yeah, for me, this uh, this match was like a greatest hits of the of the Stingrude rivalry that started off in late '91 in WCW. Thing about a greatest hits compilation is that yeah, it, you know, it has all the little nods and and bits and bobs that make you love the the artist or artist in this instance. But um, yeah, you you often look at it and think, well, if you've been following the entire career of that of that band. Um, you've probably got all the albums. The albums have more of a story. They capture the moment, the culture at the time. Why would you bother picking up the greatest hits? And that's the way this match struck me. Uh, it was nice to see as a fan of them, but you think, well, you know, you can get much better work, much better rivalry between the two, because much like Sting Vader, Sting Rude was a match they went back to so many times when they had nothing better to do. Uh, that finished, though. Oh, my God. So, Ray, Race was just so out of position. He was meant to be there bang on time for the for, for the neck breaker. So, Rude's having to pretend he's struggling to, to get Sting in for it, and he has to put up a fight. Yeah. 
Because he, he picks he picks Sting up and then kind of drops him and then goes back to it again, doesn't he? Yeah, well, do you know yeah. the the pro- if you watch again carefully, you can see the problem is 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 race is looking for a chair. Uh, here's the kicker. This is the thing that makes me laugh. Vader, who, as we just said, could, they he he didn't really have to be doing the running, picks up a chair, even though he has no more lines in this particular play, so to speak. But he picks up a chair like he's gonna use it, like you know, I'll get there, I'll wait. My manager's got there first, but he's got a chair. Aaron Neville, who sung the anthem, is sat on a chair out there for no reason, as you touched upon earlier. And so Race is having to look extra hard for a chair. And it screws up the finish of the match because now it just looks so bloody contrived, which is a shame. I think he took Heenan's chair in the end. He does, yeah. Because he's like, I can't touch Aaron Neville's chair. He's too big of a star, so I'll just take Heenan's. Um, But the the other thing I didn't like about this is, well, you've got Nick Barkwinkle, the commissioner, just sat there. He starts telling Vader, as you said, Vader's got the chair, they don't do anything, leaves him alone, and then tells Race don't do anything, and just watches Race go in the ring and do all this. And it's just like, why are you there? What, you know, why are you, why are you sat out there? You're just allowing everything to go on. Um, so I, I don't think Bockwinkle needed to have been there, really. I, that's another thing that, you know, if you're going to have somebody, an authority figure there, then they need to do something when stuff like that's going on, or they just look stupid. Yes. To allow these things to happen. But yeah. there you go. I suppose, as you say, because WCW. There you go. This is the same Nick Buckwinkle who threatened to suspend Jimmy Garvin at Super Bowl, even though Jimmy Garvin, as they kind of admitted in that same segment, didn't actually work for the company. So, yeah, he was he was a great wrestling champion his in-ring career, but as as an authority figure in the 90s WCW, yeah, what a waste of space. Bless him. I mean, he was a good choice in that, you know, he was an old an elder statesman, a former world champion, and if you ever listen to his interviews from his prime, he was magnificently articulate. So, I think they're trying they're trying to get that side of things into it but then, yeah I... you know when when you're booked into a corner by wcw yeah. like that then you've you've got no hope of you know of, of, of becoming a credible authority figure exactly i will stress that no one would have succeeded in that role it wasn't against no. Bockwinkle. No. no much much like uh what we were saying with austin muta regal pillman some some great workers sometimes are just you know if you get served shit all you can make is a shit sandwich or there pick it up and roll it in glitter if that Floats your boat. <laughs> yeah, those specialist websites of mine. Uh, okay, so before we move on with the rest of the pay per view, just a few little things I want to talk to you about. If you are listening to us on iTunes or on Podbean, then just to let you know, we are also part of the IWN, the International Wrestling Network, independent wrestling from around the world, including. IPW that I commentate on, plus a load of podcasts from around the world. Uh, we have an offer on at the moment. If you are listening to this and you would like to have a 20% discount off of your $4.99 a month price for the next six months, then just sign up and use the discount code of 20 because WCW. That's two zero and then because WCW, all one word, all capitals. The code has got a few weeks left to run. It expires on the 13th of June. So that's 20% off for the next six months and just use the code 20 because WCW. On the 13th of May, IPW returns to the Clapham Grand, just opposite Clapham Junction train station with Extreme Measures 2018 
IPW and CZW, Combat Zone Wrestling, are uniting for that one for the first time ever. That is going to be something special. And then I've got a couple of shows with our chums at Kayfabe Events. Uh, two evenings with Jimmy Havoc. Aren't I the lucky one? If I escape unscathed, that will be uh, that will be a miracle. But we're in Brighton on Friday, the 25th of May, and up in Manchester on the uh, 26th of May. That's the bank holiday weekend. Go to kfabeevents.com for full details and to purchase your tickets there. And uh, don't forget to give us a follow on Twitter. We're at because WCW. And we're also on facebook.com slash because WCW. Okay, back to Spring Stampede 94, match number six. It's a bunkhouse match between Bunkhouse Buck and Dustin Rhodes. Rhodes comes sprinting down the ramp, flies over the top rope, lands straight onto Buck. Uh, which is a fantastic way to start the match. The bunkhouse match, made famous, of course, by Dusty Rhodes, is uh, come as you are, which means jeans, cowboy boots, taped fists, and, of course, knee pads, because uh, all street fights have knee pads involved. Uh, Colonel Robert Parker, who's Buck's real-life cousin, although this is never acknowledged, he interferes quite freely in this because, well, after all, it is, it is an anything-goes match. Rhodes is bleeding quite early on, the blood going into his blonde hair for the added visual, and by the end of the match, he really is bleeding quite badly. He's selling big time for Buck, but I don't know, the crowd just don't quite seem to be into him all that much. Um, Rhodes digs something out of his pocket that's wrapped up in paper. It's the traditional wrestling powder. It goes straight into Buck's eyes. Buck comes back, starts whipping Rhodes with his belt. Rhodes turns the tables on Buck later on. He uses his belt buckle as a weapon, which means that Buck is now bleeding as well. So we've got double juice, as they say, which, again, is something you never really see in, in this day and age nowadays. Um, by sheer chance, they're both bleeding and they're both wearing white. What are the odds of that happening? Um, Rhodes takes off his cowboy boot, comes off the middle rope with the heel of his boot into Buck's head, and he then rips Buck's shirt off and whips him with the belt. Buck puts something inside his glove, but then he doesn't get to use it. Uh, Rhodes hits the bulldog. Parky gets up on the apron, so Rhodes suplexes him in rather than covering Buck, so that's the distraction. Parker then puts some brass knuckles onto Buck's glove. He nails Rhodes with the winning pinfall. I don't know, to me, well, to me, Bunkhouse Buck just never really got over. But I suppose the glaring thing for me that was was that we've we've already had a street fight in this show, and now we've we've got this Bunkhouse match, which isn't that essentially the same thing, Gossy? I think because I I was thinking about this as well. They sort of told two different stories. You've got one match being the street fight tag match, which is all over the place. They're, they're the gimmick uh, fake merchandise stand. They're on the ramp. They're off the ramp. This match is just solely kept in the ring. And the other thing that this match has, which didn't really see in the tag match, although it could have been as well, is just the amount of blood. So I think it sort of differentiated itself, even though it's still a similar sort of thing. And they're looking at it thinking, oh, for God's sake, we got two matches that are pretty much the same thing. They've tried to make it different. So I, you know, I commend them for that. I didn't really understand the finish. It seemed like Buck was trying to hide the brass knucks. And then when he did hit Rhodes with it, it seemed like, you know, the referee didn't see it. Why? Why is that happening in a match with no rules? You could just do what you want, as they've been doing all through the match. Mm. Uh, but it's it, it was what it was. Again, we're, we're looking at a, at a point where, you know, there's no... Uh, 
toilet break matches. You know, there's just one following the other. Everything, as we'll see here now, we should just go straight into the main event. There's, there's, there's nothing to really break things up. So the crowd are probably just getting a bit tired at this point, I'm thinking. Was Bunkhouse Buck ever over in WCW? Did anyone really care about him? Probably not. The thing about Bunkhouse Buck is that it's easy to forget when you watch a pay-per-view like this cold after 20-odd years. Um, as as you'll see throughout the summer, he's just a part of the narrative. The feud here is Dustin Rhodes versus Colonel Robert Parker and what would soon become his stud stable. And mm. Buck was a part of that, but far more notable over the coming months will be the likes of Terry Funk and Arn Anderson. And then you have the, uh, the Nasty Boys turn face... Uh, and Dusty Rhodes comes back in at a time where sticking old Dusty Rhodes back in the ring actually makes sense. Um, I actually appreciate the war games between uh, these two stables, and I agree with Darren. They did what they could to make this match work, despite there being a near-identical match, and they went for more the old-school violence way, but it's a shame, because the, the, the thing right from the start is the attire. The whole attempt to make a bunkhouse match something different to your typical no DQ is the come as you are taping up your fists and that and you'll remember the, the, the four guys in the Chicago street fight are pretty much dressed in casual gear so that's straight out of the window but they I think they did a really good job and as you said Dean the Dustin's start to it was brilliant The vi- not not just the way he comes flying in but the visual he gets straight up and plays to the crowd that's the sort of clip uh, a company that was semi-competent will be sticking in their highlight reels for years to come just Dustin Rhodes coming over the top hitting in with the move right from the off getting up pumping his fists that's it you know if, we, if, if that happens in ECW that's in their opening montage yeah. their famous opening montage they'd always have so I, you know, this is a good match, but again, the on what is overall, like everyone, everyone agrees, this is a very good pay per view. But again, the lack of simple booking protocol and common sense is just a bit of a a downer. Something else to put in, which I don't think a lot of people realise, is Colonel Rob Parker and Bunkhouse Buck are exactly the same age, and that is something that always baffled me because you you how they're portrayed, you would think. I had no idea because yep. I mean, Bunkhouse Buck by this point is, um, I think, 44, say so he's mid 40s, yep. but I had no idea that uh, Robert Fuller was as well. Yeah, both of them, they're both exactly the same age. Time had not been kind to him. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit of a misconception, isn't it, that managers are basically retired, washed up wrestlers. But sometimes, and we've we, we've long been members of the uh, of the Colonel Robert Parker fan club here on because WCW, there yes. are guy, there are guys who are very skilled at looking like they have no skill, and mm. and he was always that guy, and he he does that here, and as a result, it makes sense that he plays the manager even when there are guys older. <laughs> Arguably more washed up that that still get in ring roles. He was. I've just looked up. He was. <laughs> Colonel Robert Parker is two and a half months older than Bunkhouse Buck. <laughs> there you go. It's a huge difference. But the, wow. the other thing, I never knew that. Yes, slight history lesson. I'll make it quick. The Fuller family, going back to the Gulches, which Roy Gulch was Rob Parker and the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller, his brother. 
their grandfather, and also it would be Jimmy Golden's, uh, Bunkhouse Burke's grandfather as well, um, started like in the early 1900s when wrestling was still a shoot uh, with George Hackenschmidt and guys like this. He was around when it went from being a shoot into a work. What I'm trying to get at is the, the Fuller family there, Rob Parker's grandfather, you can trace it back nearly 90 years where Roy Gulch would eventually sell his uh, interest in Tennessee wrestling to Jerry Jarrett. And he actually hired Christine Jarrett, which is uh, Jerry Jarrett's grandmother, Jeff Jarrett's grandmother, sorry. So it was that, that link with Rob Parker, you've got a link that goes all the way back to the early 1900s. And it's really quite fascinating to look into that family lineage they've got because it basically transcends American professional wrestling. And to think ownership of Tennessee wrestling only got more complicated from there. Oh, yes. These days, it's an absolute mess. <laughs> yes, absolutely. For interesting story, even you've just got a random manager there, but actually, and of course, them being the same age, still is completely baffling. So there you go. Just bored everyone completely stupid with that, but that's what I'm here for, you know, just to bore people <laughs> and or confuse them. I liked it, Darren. And well, that's and that's too. all that matters. There you go. You you I, I, ignore our five listeners and just just let us tell you that that was great. I I think if you're going to bore people, at least bore them with factual accuracy. I suppose I mean, the the other thing to bear that that did spring to mind for me with with this show is that, or this match rather I should say is you know the the bunkhouse match is you know typically a, a southern match. Uh, this is a feud between someone from Texas and someone from Tennessee, but it's all happening in the north of the country. So it's kind of the wrong match for the wrong city, if you see what I mean. As you say, we're in the Rosemont Horizon, which, funnily enough, almost, uh, we're going back a little bit here, excuse me, but almost three years after this date, in the Rosemont Horizon, you'd have WrestleMania 13 with the Steve Austin Bret Hart submission match. Mm. And. You look how far Austin has got at that point compared to now. You would never think he'd be in that sort of a role. So I'm, I'm all over the place. It's what I do. It's just like one of my promos, really. Nothing's making any real sort of sense. They, I can't really link that into anything. But, but, but it's, all, it's all very interesting. It, it, well, it's, it's, it's yeah. something just to, just to think in four years. Um, no, hang on, four, five, six, three years. Three years where stunning Steve Austin would be compared to Stone yeah. Cold. Definitely. Okay, so uh, next up is Jesse Ventura's backstage with a with a furious Rick Rude, who is uh, confronting Vader about Harley Race's interference, and they kind of come to blows. And then you see the other heels, namely uh, Regal and the Nasty Boys, break it up. And I, I've got to say, I just love the idea of a separate heel dressing room. Kayfabe is alive and well in 1994. What I do not like is the sight of Jerry Sags wearing nothing but a towel. That's what I've got down my, my, my notes. <laughs> I just got that, that is the definition. You look up fear in the dictionary, and it's Jerry Sags in a towel. And, and you know he wouldn't have had any shorts underneath that for like insurance purposes. Oh, man. I wasn't looking enough to find but, out. No, but it's like... I, I remember when in, um, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, and like the the WWF as they were then would come to the uh, come to the Brighton Centre for a house show, and uh, we'd wait around the back of the venue where the the um, like the stage door was um, to see all the wrestlers coming out. And even back then, so we're talking like 91, 92 time, they would have two coaches, one coach for the heels and one coach for the baby faces. 
I think it's just little touches like that that I love. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great thing, absolutely great thing, and it's obviously I get it why it's not happening now, but it reminds you know what it reminded me of the old battle ball things, you know when you you they yeah you you you'd have the split cameras there to see who would who would come out and nobody could hear and it would be mm. there's another because WCW take a battle ball, good god. Oh, we'll have to do one of them. We'll have to do one of them sometime. Yeah. But but it, to me, you see, it made it made a baby face or a heel turn that more much more important because it wasn't just that you know you were changing your whole philosophy. You were changing dressing rooms, and you would have a whole new a whole new team to get to know. Can you imagine those awkward goodbyes when they pick up their stuff to move it to the other change room? So, <laughs> all, right, all right, guys. Yeah, just get me stuff. Yeah, oh. just 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 kick me tag partner in the balls. Sorry, I got um, you know the rules. I got I got to go next door. It's been nice getting to know you all. Maybe maybe I'll see a couple of you down the line. Cheerio. <laughs> Am I overthinking <laughs> this? Oh man, yeah, I kicked his leg from out of his leg. Yeah. <laughs> Oh dear. Okay, so um, we we then have a brief clip of uh, the boss attacking Vader at Super Bowl Four, our last pay per view in the Thunderdome cage. So that was uh, that was a match where the boss had been the guest referee, hadn't he? Vader for the, Flair, Vader for the rematch. Match. Yeah, Flair Vader. Thank you. I couldn't remember in the Thunder Vader. Cage. Yes, I couldn't remember who Vader's opponent was, but um, yes, there was, it was Flair. So this this is a grudge match which has stemmed from that incident. It's the boss, which is uh, Ray Trailer done up in um, suspiciously similar gear to the big boss man. More on that later. The um, boss the same... man, is he big? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they might <laughs> as well be, just with... say that after every mention. It's got the same uh, black trousers with the yellow stripe. The same uh, the shirt is just black rather than blue. But then, ironically, when he went back to the WWF or WWE, is the big boss man who's back wearing black. But uh, as I said, we'll get onto that because it's uh, it happens at the end. Um, poor Harley Race takes another kicking this time from the boss. Um, this match is as as they say, two hosses going at it. Uh, they brawl on the ramp. Vader downs the boss with a brutal short clothesline. Uh, he takes a, he then uh, takes a run up and tries a splash over the ropes onto the boss who's in the ring, but Vader doesn't entirely make it and uh, nearly breaks his neck as his feet don't quite clear the ropes. JT Smith style. Um, boss gets Vader up for a body slam, which always looks impressive. Boss gets backdropped off the top, but a miscommunication between the two means that Boss doesn't get up high enough. I think he kind of gets up for what looks like a spine buster and, and is then dumped over the ropes and narrowly avoids landing on his head on the apron by grabbing the ropes, which is kind of scary. Um, Vader's bleeding hard way from the eyebrow. I'm not sure how that happened. Or it might have been from that aforementioned miscommunication. Um, Vader unloads his famous combo punch in the corner, which I always loved. Um, Boss gets Vader up for a back suplex. Vader clobbers Boss with a massive clothesline. Uh, Boss hits a clumsy-looking DDT off the middle rope onto Vader and then kicks out of a middle rope Vader bomb splash. Vader goes up top again. This time he nails his, what I always think is his amazing-looking moonsault for the pinfall. Um, which will explain why Great Muta didn't do a moonsault earlier on in the show. Harley Race gets attacked again. Is that five times now? As Boss goes crazy on both him and Vader with his nightstick. And Nick Bockwinkle then gets into the ring to intervene and to, to separate the two. To me, a bit like Muta and Austin, this looked better on paper than it was in reality. Um, and the two didn't have 
great chemistry in the ring together. The match didn't really gel too well. What did you guys think? Well, I, you know, I didn't mind it. I, I, I seem to remember at the time thinking, eh, this isn't going to be great because the big boss man, especially towards the end, wasn't known for amazing matches in the WWF. And so I sort of still had that in my mind, but I really enjoyed it. And I don't know whether that's because I was just in my head as a a 14 year old kid, I'm still thinking Vader is this unstoppable monster. So for any time somebody can come in and get the offense and knock him around a bit, because Vader gave him a lot in this match, I thought, uh, compared to, I know you see some matches with Vader and he just kills people. Uh, But Obviously, boss. I see. I'm calling boss man now. The boss. Sorry, the boss. And and again, I'm I'm going back to what you said. It's the Harley race thing. I mean, it's just they almost turned him face. Uh, it's this poor old man who's just got annihilated the entire show. And and the finish when he was just beating the hell out of him with a nightstick as well. It's like, what's going on here? What 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 what, what is happening? Why why are they beating up this poor old man? So I don't know. That's that was my takeaway from it, anyways. That match, I don't know. I didn't mind it, but I think I, I, as I say, I think the issue of a lot of this now is, is the pacing of a show with the crowd, and they they needed something, even if it was just a segment where people would come out and instead of doing those backstage promos, do it in front of the live crowd, give them some time to, you know, come down a little bit. But instead, if it was one match after the other after the other, and you know, and top matches, matches that had a lot of story and a lot of uh, juice to them, if you will. WCW loves doing those little uh, talky segues. The problem is, as me and Dean have touched on um, in previous episodes, they do it right at the start of the fucking pay-per-view. <laughs> they do all the pyro and all that. Then they have 15 minutes of talking. Not even like Raw, do you know when you have guys talking in the ring? It's not wrestling, but at least the, the fans are engaged. They'd ignore the live crowd and just run down the show, and then they'd have a match. And we, we, we've, we've slated that before. But yeah, if they did that in the middle of a pay-per-view, it would give the live crowd a break. So that's another thing they really keep cocking up. I've got to add one other thing. is um, You guys have said about the beatdown on race after match and yeah it's a bit, the idea is it's a bit excessive so that Bockwinkle can strick it yeah, yeah. the thing is it's yeah. it's but it's worth remembering uh when the boss gets pinned by the moonsault race comes in actually takes the uh the handcuffs and the nightstick and he looks like he's trying to he actually gets one of the cuffs on the boss's wrist he's he's gonna tether him up and him and Vader are presumably gonna beat the ever-loving crap out of him so they, even though obviously it didn't register with many people, they did try and do this thing where he's been pushed to the point of snapping. But yeah, it went down like a lead balloon. Yeah, you say that, come... over I think what what's happened the entire show is Harley Race knows you can get beaten up by everyone, so it's a very very poor attempt to just try and defend himself by handcuffing the opponent because he knows he's going to get battered. <laughs> yeah, it it wouldn't surprise me if he actually insisted on doing this part because the writing didn't make sense look at least let me be a hill fellas um this yeah. this match for me yeah. like on paper it is a super heavyweight dream match of this era because i know darren mentioned and he's right that big boss man towards the end the very end of the wf run uh was a bit of a lame duck like early 93 but in 91 he was incredible he was so fast so agile so hard working and i still remember him actually getting a good match out of nails that actually happened so 
these are, you know, these are probably the two best big men of the era. Maybe maybe Bam Bam Bigelow could be in with a shot there. But um, these two, on paper, could have a tremendous match. In the end, they've had... I, I would describe it as a, a situation where the parts are good, but the sum of the parts are not. Because they yeah. did some great moves. They went at each other. Proper big man style. But yeah, you, as you said, Dean, the chemistry just wasn't great. It's a shame. Should have been better, and also I, I think the order should have been reversed with this and the Rick Rude match. It's an alleged title Sting and Rude are fighting for, so I put it on later. Not only that, but the whole narrative of the of the Rude Vader feud they're going for would make a little more sense, especially with the challenge of the title. It's like slow down, mate. He's got to beat the boss first. Yeah, definitely. One other thing I've got to ask because this is the first time. I think Vader's come up on one of our pay-per-views. Vader doing moonsaults. What's what's your opinion on it? Um, it's a great move. Uh, that, that exactly how you bust it out is debatable. I'd say in this instance, it's a good shout because they're trying to portray this as a big grudge match between two very comparable super heavyweight wrestlers. And so the idea being that Vader has had to go to the moonsault to get the win is good. So, in this context alone, I like it. But in general, I'm not sure. I mean, I know you mentioned about Muta not doing one, but does does Muta really lose anything from not doing it? I mean, the biggest pop he got in his match was the handspring elbow. So he had he had those big pop moments without the moonsault. So I don't know if it's used sparingly I mean if he's doing a moonsault in every match which he pretty mm. much did in WWF Vader when he got there later on um, it just didn't seem to be anything yeah I'm I'm a fan of the uh, the ultra finisher as a concept especially in this era where for big matches so many wrestlers feel obliged to use finishers three or four times and have multiple kickouts and stuff like that and it really grates me uh, we've just, we're, we're fresh off of Wrestlemania where you know, I enjoyed a lot of things and there were some things that weren't so great but I could be constructive. The one thing about that WrestleMania 34 card that in my book is just a flat out dud, a failure, was the main event. And for for someone just to keep hitting, especially, you know, the top guy, Brock Lesnar, F5, kick out, F5, kick out, F5, kick out. This isn't yeah. a fucking video game. So to ha- to put something on the finishers, and, and yeah, you, he's got his power bomb, he's got his Vader bomb, and in very selective circumstances, as I mentioned just now, this is one of them. A big grudge match. They want to protect the boss. Okay, kick out the Vader bomb. Then he hits the moonsault. It all makes sense. It's yes. do it is possible. It's not black and white. It's possible to get drama from having finishers get breached, but it's about how you do it. And yeah. having an ultra finisher can help, uh, as long as it's not that fucking New Orleans main event. I mean, that all stemmed from All Japan and Pro Wrestling Noah, where you'd get, you know, the big finishers that the guy, the the the, the top guys had that would always win, and you know, on one of the really big matches with the, you know, because they they often did six man tags and the singles matches were saved for the big shows and the title matches were saved. New, for the New big Japan shows. still do that. I'm sure the other guys do. New Japan's yeah. the one I watch the most, but it's still very much the Japanese way. I'm I'm thinking of you know, the likes of your the era of like Mizawa, Kawada, Kabashi, and you know they would hit their finisher, and 
the person would kick out and there'd be a stunned silence and the you know and the wrestler would like what the hell and then they'd then hit it again and get the pinfall. So it was like you know the the move still worked, but you just you had that unusual, highly unusual moment of the wrestler kicking out. Whereas yeah, it's now been totally taken into overdrive in the modern era with like you say, you know, six F fives being being taken out. But um, talking of the WWF, uh, we now have our, our next um, our next skit where we go backstage with Nick Bockwinkle and the Boss, along with Jesse Ventura, and um, following the the actions of the Boss with that beatdown of uh, Harley Race and Vader, uh, Bockwinkle takes away his nightstick, takes away his handcuffs, and tells him that he is no longer the Boss, and says that it's a, not a popular decision, but he has to do what's right. Whereas, of course, in in reality, Liam, it was uh, it was the WWF taking legal action. Yeah, and so Bockwinkle's line is pretty much a shoot comment on the on the underneath there. But yeah, uh, it's just blatant how much they're ripping off. And I think we mentioned on a previous one about how you know it might not be as as well known across the world, but. Big Bubba Rogers is there. There's things he can do. But now you end up going through a few cycles before they actually decided Big Bubba. And then they called him Ray Trailer for his last year or so in the company. Yeah, they ran out of ideas. Yeah. Right. So it is time for our main event. And uh, surely you can't go wrong with Flair v Steamboat. Although Steamboat's music plays for a second before stopping again. Someone's having a tech nightmare. Um, so this is for the WCW World Heavyweight title, Ricky Steamboat v. Ric Flair. As we mentioned earlier, this is the first WCW pay-per-view where the name of Hulk Hogan is being mentioned, but somewhat cagely for reasons that they're so they're waiting for WC sorry, they're waiting for WWF to potentially make a counter offer to Hogan, you say. Yes, they had the right to match the offer. Most people knew that they weren't going to trial because obviously if they wanted him he'd have still been there and they're about to be put through the trial so I didn't know what they you know there was there was a, a scenario where they could have had their assets stripped including Titan Towers so who knows what financial state would have been in so it was a formality that they were going to decline to take them up on that clause so that's why they were confident enough that they could mention Hogan's name but not say he was yeah I, I like to look at it as due diligence and it pretty yeah. much was because you know they know it's it's barring disaster it's gonna happen but they still they just have to slow their roll until they get to that stage yeah. that's where we are now because rick flair is very much on the booking committee and while they're in this pre-hogan holding pattern it's almost like tna in 2009 as well it's basically right let's just try and put on shows and rick flair decides right i'm gonna kill the time by fighting one of my favorite opponents in a match i know is going to be great so that's yeah, how we got how, here. How did this match come about? They were friends on television. Steamboat was one of the first to congratulate him when he beat Vader at Starcade '93. Obviously, they decided they were going to kill time, like kill one month cycle on the pay per view with a match, and um, they did a little bit of friends like, having a bit of tension, arguing over you know who's the better man in this series. Yeah. I think there was an instant on Saturday Night where. I think Flair accidentally hit Steamboat, or was it an accident? Blah blah blah. So I did the older uh, two baby faces have a bit of uh, oh, have I a bit see. of friction, 
but other, otherwise it's a, it's a, for the main event it's relatively cold whereas the 1989 series was obviously built up to the crescendo of the matches yeah actually there's something else i meant to mention that this is the this is the uh, inaugural string stampede in 94 but then we don't have another one until 1997 that's well, probably because the uh, the theme and the build up was so crap, tempting to be like a rodeo, that they only they only went back to it when they were desperate. But hey, Spring Stampede '99 is one of my favourite ever WCW pay per view. So clearly, so they they did '94, '97, '98, '99. That's that's five, and two of them happen to be you and I's respectively you and I's in our top three WCW pay per views of all time. Yeah. So it punched a good average, the the name brand. Yeah, Super Bowl threes right up there for me as well, definitely. And WrestleMania mm. ninety two, we've we've already covered. Um, yeah. So yeah, Steamboat um, has his dragon entrance garb from his WWE run, which kind of looks out of place here in the more serious WCW. Um, Flair gets a, a huge pop coming out to to the point that even Shivani mentions that you know Steamboat, who's the perennial babyface, has been getting a few boos from people. Um, and, and as we've said, we know these two have history in Chicago. Um, so we've got Michael Buffer for the ring intros. I don't know why he keeps talking about matches being sanctioned by the WCW, but there you go. The thing I noticed as well, and I don't know if, if either of you picked up on this at all or, or thought the same as me, but Flair's now in his mid-40s, and he's looking noticeably old in both the face and the body, whereas Steamboat, who's a couple of years younger at 41, looks as, as evergreen as he always is. That's probably got a lot to do with Flair's lifestyle after the shows. Um, <laughs> that's true. Compared to what Steamboat does after shows, so I think it does take its toll on yes. nature. And um, we also see um, Flair's wife, Beth, that's his second wife, Beth, uh, for those of you who are keeping count, um, at ringside. They'd they actually be, looked up, they'd be together for another 12 years before Flair was getting sort of married and divorced on an almost annual basis. So, yeah, as the, as the commentators allude to, after all the gimmicks, all the stunts and stipulations of the undercard, the main event, it's got a, a legitimate feel to it. It's presented like a, a proper wrestling match. I... I kind of felt the presentation and the way it was being taken seriously was much akin to the old days of World of Sport in the UK, where it was like, you know, a proper match. We have five minutes of sort of map-based grappling. The match picks up pace at a vertical base, which works in Steamboat's favour. Um, Steamboat is going after Flair, both in and out of the ring, and the commentators are noticing how more aggressive than usual he is. Uh, we get our first chop battle, and my God, they sound loud. Uh, I thought Bobby Heenan's great on commentary here because he's mixing both good analytical points with his usual humour and and being very biased towards Flair, as you would expect from their history in the WWF. What amazes me is that Steamboat has a headlock on for a good few minutes, but they still manage to keep the crowd's attention by the way they're they're manipulating the move the whole time. Um, We have more trading of holds, lots of cradle pinfall attempts. Both men tumble over the top to the floor and after a a, uh, flare cross body block, Steamboat comes off the middle of the top rope, which looks very impressive with a chop to Flair's head. Back in the ring, Flair's backing off as uh, Gary Michael Capetta gives the 20-minute call. Shivani mentions it's a 60-minute time limit. 
Um, if it wasn't for the fact that pay-per-view time is limited, you, you could easily see these two going the full hour, and obviously they have done on many occasions before. Flair goes for his patented knee drop, but in a really good spot. Steamboat catches his leg and then turns it into a figure-four leg lock on Flair. Heenan's going crazy on commentary at the prospect of Ric Flair being beaten by his own hold. Flair keeps trying to get to the rope. Steamboat keeps pulling him back. Eventually, Flair breaks it with a, a thumb to the eye. Um, which sends Steamboat to the floor, Flair limping around, and both of these men, absolute masters of, of selling. Um, Steamboat gets a near fall with a backslide. Um, he then lands his top rope cross body block, which is his usual finish, but that only gets a two count. Flair ducks a chop, nails Steamboat with a clothesline, which the crowd love. Um, Steamboat sells again as only he can this, this desperation Flair gets caught off the top rope and slammed off the top as he always does Steamboat takes advantage, goes up to the top himself but misses a top rope splash, holds his knee after the crash landing, Flair seizes this, this opportunity, clamps on the figure four in the dead centre of the ring um, Steamboat finally gets to the ropes, 30 minutes have now passed, both men are now on the top rope, Steamboat lands this huge superplex which both men sell like they're dead, then uh what I like here is also re referee Nick Patrick gets tangled up as they're both running into the ropes. He gets bumped to the outside but runs straight back in, so I'm presuming that wasn't supposed to happen. Um, it's another two count for a rolling press by Steamboat, and then Steamboat executes the, the double chicken wing that he won the title with five years ago. Um, he falls down, rolls backwards. It looks like both men's shoulders are down. The ref counts to three. Uh, Steamboat celebrates a prostrate flare, lifts his arms up while lying on the canvas. Randy Anderson comes into the ring um, and then we can hear Nick Patrick telling uh, Nick Bockwinkle that both men's shoulders were down um, but then Patrick this is what really confuses me this is a, a very much a because WCW moment after you've had such a great main event Patrick then confusingly raises Flair's arm Buffer announces Flair as the winner and actually it's a draw and a double pin but Flair retains the title um, so putting the finish aside, this was a classic main event that went 32 minutes and was pretty much everything you'd expect from a Flair v Steamboat match. You can't go wrong with this. It was you can't, no. The match of the night for me, without question, match of the show even. And, and another thing to think of is just in a matter of weeks, you would have this match, then WrestleMania 10, you'd have Brett versus Owen, and the ladder match with Sean and Razor. So mm -hmm. an incredible time for pro wrestling uh, at that moment. What I loved as well was the work in the holds. There was a, a point where Steamboat put a backslide on Flair and Flair was fighting it. And they just went back and forth for what was probably only about 10 seconds. But there's that moment where, and then when he finally does get down for the pin, the crowd are into it because they've made it mean something. The mm. same was when Flair did put this uh, figure four on Steamboat towards the end of the match. And Steamboat was grabbing Flair's legs to stop him from being able to put it on, yeah. trying to push it up. And eventually Flair was able to, it's little things like that, you see, that makes such a difference rather than just putting the move on, you know? Yeah. It's just two masters of their craft and... Uh, just a, a pleasure to watch this and it was something that you really wouldn't see in WCW from this point on it would go the other way around where they'd have a strong undercard and then the main event would be horrendous this was definitely uh, you, know, you know I'm not saying the undercard was bad as we know it wasn't but this was probably the last great main event they'd have for a long long time if ever I don't think they probably ever had another main event as good as that again yeah I mean one thing that 
I often tell like young wrestlers in training schools or just starting out, whatever is, and especially it's so easy now with, with YouTube and the WWE network. If you're a baby face, watch Rick Steamboat matches to see how he sells because no yes. one sells a baby face in peril better than Ricky Steamboat. Absolutely. I'd stick Ricky Morton up there as well. Um, True. Yes. For, for another guy to watch, but just a, just a great match and just really, really enjoy it. The commentary was on point. As you said, the end was a bit confusing. And then Nick Bockwinkle spoke at the end and seemed to make it even more confusing as well with what he was on about. He started going on about a committee and everything. And it's like, what the hell? You're making this so much more difficult than it needs to be. <laughs> but it was, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great, great match. And it was one that I, I've seen it a few times. Uh, well, as I said, I haven't seen the whole card top to bottom since yeah. like, tw- 24 years, which makes me feel ridiculously old. Um, <laughs> but moving on from that rather quickly, just great match. Absolutely great. Yeah. This main event was symbolic of the entire show. It was put together purely to hold things in place until the Grand Messiah Hulk Hogan arrived to change everything. They hoped. Technically, it was very, very good. And yet... It was marred by the structuring and the booking because that finish was absolutely atrocious. I think the best way to put it into perspective is you want to do a if if you do the contentious draw, it usually leads to a decider, a blow off. But obviously, we're going straight into title unification and then being Flair being gobbled up by Hogan. So that makes the finish even more sad. You might as well have Flair win to keep the momentum going to where they're going. So it it really annoyed me to see that. It could be argued that it's, you know, in other respects, it's inferior to their their infamous series. Which, you know, that's not really a, a detriment because, you know, many people still consider that the greatest series of matches of all time. And five years later, in, in their mid-40s now, they, they are going to slow a little bit. But it's still good enough to enjoy it. I, I said a lot about Sting Rude and having that greatest hit syndrome. They had that here, but there were a lot more homages and plays off of their original series to, to make it necessary to watch this match as well. So I appreciate that. But the finish just just really craps on it. I really do. I, I, I don't like it at all. I didn't have a problem with the, the the actual finish itself. It was how they presented it and how they just made it so much more confusing. Because if you look at the end, Flair is just on the floor. He's grabbing that belt. He's only just by the skin of his teeth, he's been able to hold that belt. And it's a very, very gradual heel turn that would eventually come on then uh, when he worked Sting just before Hogan came in. So I think they're really planting a seed, if you will, for when Hogan would come in and then Flair would be that heel. So just a different way to look at it as well. That's all I'm thinking. Tell that to a ticket by a member of that crowd, though. Especially on a show that is, that really should have been so much better. Yeah, it's no, no arguments. It's a great show. But it's almost like it was a great show despite WCW. And that could be another, that could be a spin-off of because <laughs> of This is a great show despite <laughs> WCW. Trying trying to hamstring this yeah. show, the workers went out and pretty much everyone on the card did great. And there was a lot to enjoy. But there was so much about the way it was put together. It's almost like they were trying to tank it. Maybe that was part of the Hogan MO. I don't know. Uh, there's so many things that have been sabotaging this godforsaken company. But yeah, it's 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 a shame that we end on that sour note because I have to stress that 
it was it was very it's three very enjoyable hours. I recommend to anyone. We don't often finish a, a, an episode of this podcast saying that. It's just a shame with those little sour notes of what could have been. It could, it could have been the greatest pay-per-view in their history. But as a result, I have to agree with Dean. Super Bowl three probably still above it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing one thing on a personal level that really that I always remember about this pay-per-view was that um, I got the uh, I got the VHS tape of it um, probably sometime not too long after it happened. And I just have this memory of me and my mum and my dad and my brother going around to visit my my uncle and aunt who lived not too far away from us in Worthing and um, their son um, who a reasonable wrestling fan as well. And so I basically brought the, the tape with me. And for some reason we ended up where we had it on in the front room and everyone was, everyone was watching the pay-per-view on, on tape. And it was one of those where you're watching this show in front of people who aren't wrestling fans, but you didn't feel embarrassed about watching it because it held its own as a, as a match. And like my dad, who's a wrestling fan from the world of sport era, he was completely engaged by the Flair Steamboat match. And um, the the street fight had everyone wincing and thinking, well, it isn't all that fake after all, is it? And it, it just from that perspective as well, I've got very fond memories of this on a personal level. Okay, so just before we go, of course, we ask all of our guests to tell us their favourite WCW entrance theme. And of course, therefore, Mr. Goss, this is your choice. So uh, let's press play and find out what have you chosen for us? Space Odyssey, and I just thought it was fitting that we'd be watching that great match. And also with WrestleMania recently, uh, Charlotte had this as she came to the ring to start off. So I thought, yes, of course, yeah, you know, and I I, I got a little bit excited for that as we all did. Um, uh, It was just a nice little touch, and it just made me think, you know, because a a lot of uh, I've listened to some of your podcasts by by Gunpoint, and. Uh, you know, obviously, there's the the classics like the America Males theme. Um, but Z Man. Also, just <laughs> did you know that the American Males theme backwards is "Slap Your Grandma"? No. If you play it, I think I'll I'll I'll, I'll if you if you look this up on YouTube, I would, but probably this isn't going to go in. But if I'll try and find you the link, it says something like "Slap Your Grandma" back. But if you play it backwards, that's amazing. So, I don't I'm know. Gonna, I am, I'm literally, as soon as we finish recording this podcast, I'm straight onto YouTube. Have a look, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening to this still, have a look at that. And 
yeah, it's something like slap or smack your grandma. Do something to your grandma anyway. She's not going to yeah. like it. Um, but there you go. It manages to make a great theme song better. But regardless of that, we're talking about the Nature Boy. In my opinion, the greatest professional wrestler of all time, Ric Flair. And just a classic for a classic. And the beauty of this, of course, is that it's classical music. Therefore, neither no wrestling company can claim copyright to it. And so no. Ric Flair could take it from promotion to promotion with him and keep the gimmick, keep the music. And, it, yeah, it just has that element of over-the-top grandeur, which just befits the man himself brilliantly, doesn't it? Absolutely. And it's a, a classy bit of music for what I say, a classy pay-per-view that we've just talked about Awesome. Well, as they uh, like to say quite often in chaotic endings of the pay-per-views, we're just about out of time, folks. Um, thank you ever so much for listening to us. Thank you for downloading us. Please spread the word if you've liked this. Tell a friend. Tell ten friends. If you haven't liked it, then just you know, keep it to yourself. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at BecauseWCW. We're also on Facebook.com slash BecauseWCW. We'll be back very shortly with another pay-per-view with another guest. But it just remains for me to say, Darren Goss, thank you ever so much for joining us. And uh, good luck with the Reckless Intent and the Discovery shows. I'm sure that I'll uh, catch you at some point down the road. And uh, on behalf of my co-host Liam Hatt. This is the Twisted Junior saying thanks for joining us and I'll see you ringside.